Every field needs experts who understand problems at multiple levels of analysis and have track records of creating solutions at different scales of impact. Stephen Moray is one such expert. In his posts leading state economic and workforce development agencies in Louisiana and in Virginia, Steve has designed solutions that have equipped local and regional employers and individual workers to meet the evolving challenges of the workforce and seize new opportunities. Steve now leads the Strata Education Network, a social impact organization that focuses on making the education to workforce pipeline more accessible and open by removing systemic barriers to educational attainment, skill development, and workforce readiness. Strata achieves this mission through research targeted at helping state and local policymakers, as well as individuals who are looking to make the most out of their educational programs. Stephen Murray, thanks for joining us on Hardly Working. Great to be with you, Brent. Really appreciate your time. As we record, we are uh, approaching Thanksgiving. So everybody's busy. That's one thing. And everyone's feeling thankful um, for all of the uh, many wonderful things they have in their lives. Uh, and one of those things for me, of course, is you and your work at Strata, uh, which I think is really important. Um, and really glad to have you here to talk about it. Uh, let's back up, though, um, and start at the beginning. Um, talk to us about your pathway. Um, my hope and dream is that we have lots of young people listening who are at the beginning of their careers or, or early on in their careers are thinking about how to set vocational direction. So I'd like to get uh, people like you who have had a, a distinguished career already and have them talk a little bit about how they got there and how they um, how it differed from where they thought they were going. Yeah, wow, that's a lot to to answer. Um, well, I I think it's important to start by saying that from the age of about uh, I guess six, uh, I grew up as the the son of a single mother in in mostly rural Mississippi, and that that experience and kind of the feelings of economic insecurity that I had as sort of a constant companion. Was um, was really a had a had a big impact on how I thought about my career, and how I thought about higher education. I, I really viewed higher education from a young age as kind of a, a pathway to economic security and mobility. It was really only much later, once I kind of had achieved that, that I, I started to appreciate the broader purposes um, of higher education. I, I started out in um, as a double major in, in, in mechanical engineering and music performance. As an undergrad, it turns out it takes about seven years to do those two degrees together. So I dropped uh, music and went with mechanical engineering, thinking that would be a better path to um, well-compensated employment. Um, one of the things that was, you know, a happy development or an important development in my life was I, I got a little involved in student government, even though I'd never done that in high school, and I ended up being a student body president at LSU, my undergrad school, and that really. Um, that sort of combined with the, the analytical rigor of my engineering degree kind of started to set the path uh, for my career. Initially, I started off as a, um, an engineering consultant, but very quickly realized I, I wanted to have a, a bigger impact uh, in the public sector. I ended up going back and being assistant to the chancellor of LSU and went on to Harvard Business School for my MBA 
really to try to build a stronger set of kind of general leadership skills, executive level leadership capability. Um, joined McKinsey and Company, you know, the big consulting firm after that for similar reasons. And that was really a great developmental experience for me. I still use those skills, you know, to this day. And every job that I've had since then has really led me on a path uh, towards Strata. I didn't know it at the time, certainly. Initially running, uh, creating a regional economic development organization through the Baton Rouge Area Chamber, then serving as Secretary of Economic Development for the state of Louisiana for, for almost eight years. Uh, I ran the LSU Foundation and kicked off their big uh, capital campaign, which ended up exceeding my initial goal, 1.25 billion, got to I think about one and a half billion. Uh, the last, most of the last six years, I ran the Virginia Economic Development Partnership, which is the state economic development authority for the Commonwealth of Virginia, and then started Estrada this January, uh, earlier this year. The the kind of the the theme that's run throughout my career for the last roughly two decades has been working at the intersections of higher education, economic development, and workforce development. So even in those roles where I was leading economic development for the states of Louisiana and later Virginia, much of my work really centered on the economic impact potential of either workforce development or higher education uh, or both. Um, uh, and so when I when I got this opportunity to uh, interview for Strata, by the way, I left out I left out perhaps one of the most important developmental experiences, which is along the way I got my uh, doctorate in higher education at at Penn, and my entire um, dissertation was about connections between higher education and the labor market uh, in the United States with a focus on uh, on underemployment. Uh, I was asked to present the the research from that uh, dissertation. Uh, at a regional forum that Jeff Salingo was leading for, for Strata, or Strata's predecessor, I should say, USA Funds uh, in Philadelphia several years ago back in uh, 2016. And that was really my first connection to Strata. I was immediately captivated by the mission and the fact that there would even be an organization that exists uh, that does what Strata does. And so uh, when I was uh, contacted about being a candidate for this uh, for the CEO job last year, I was really excited uh, to start that conversation and that enthusiasm certainly continues to this day. That's awesome. That's really a great story. I, and we have to back up and explore a couple of little rabbit trails that you opened up. So what did your family make of your decision? You got a degree in mechanical engineering, but I don't hear a lot of mechanical engineering jobs in your <laughs> in your background. Uh, what did your family and friends make of your streams that you entered into um, uh, as compared to what you thought you were going to do? Yeah, that's a great question, Brent. I think I think one of the things that a lot of people don't realize when they think about higher education is uh, th there's only a, a very small number of degree fields where there's a strong linkage between you know the 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 program of study and a particular occupation. Now, engineering is certainly one of those, but interestingly, uh, I think roughly half of engineering grads within ten years are no longer working as engineers. Now, many of them are managers or leaders within a technical firm, but a lot of them actually uh, leave engineering altogether, but make use of the general skill of kind of quantitative reasoning and problem solving. So for example, interestingly, I'm pretty sure I have this stat right. When I went to Harvard Business School, we had about, uh, I think 880 people or so in my class. And I believe fully 20% of them were engineers, uh, almost all of whom after business school no longer worked in any kind of technical role. 
but we're really taking that analytical capacity and, and applying it in a different context. And that's certainly been the experience I've had in my career. In fact, there's a, a substantial percentage of large uh, company CEOs uh, who are engineers as well, often without a, a graduate degree. Um, I think that, yeah, I was actually quite afraid of leaving that technical path, you know, and thinking, what am I qualified to do, you know, outside of, of something that would really make use of that engineering degree. But it, it, it turns out that uh, that that analytical horsepower is actually extremely helpful in, in many contexts. Um, in some ways, I made more use of that than my MBA. I mean, MBA was also a, a very important developmental experience, but that that sort of analytical rigor, I think that I got from engineering sticks to me to this day. Um, I do think when I left my my first job, my first job out of undergrad was essentially a engineering consulting role. So I did do that for a few years, but after that, every job that I've had really doesn't have any connection. Well, any direct connection to engineering. Now, interestingly, as I've worked with literally hundreds of manufacturing companies from an economic development perspective, I found that that engineering background was certainly helpful in terms of having a general sense of, you know, their their operations. But um, yeah, I didn't use it again, and for for quite some time, I was quite afraid that you know maybe that would be a big mistake. But as it turned out, uh, it wasn't. And you know, one of the things that I think people uh, can learn in their career is that you know your degree is not your destiny. The degree is really a jumping-off point. I do think it's important that people give some thought to what they study, but as long as a person can get into some kind of college-level occupation. Uh, the research would say that invariably they'll stay in some kind of college level job the rest of their career, even if they switch around to different kinds of jobs. Yeah, it's, it, uh, the other thing that really struck me uh, was your experience being student body president at LSU. Now, I just finished a biography of Huey Long, and so I have an appreciation for the complexities of Louisiana politics and even the role that the university plays uh, in Louisiana politics. That's a uh, that's a very human skill, right? Those are those that's a package of skills of, you know, not just getting people to like you, but getting people to, uh, you know, follow and to collaborate um, with you, which is entirely different than what we think of as engineering or what many people think of as engineering, which is kind of a, you know, somebody sitting at, in front of a computer at a drafting desk. Uh, right, with the biggest no, uh, on their own. Uh, so, how did how did that how did you get pulled into that? You know, it, it turns out that for a lot of jobs, and I would certainly say I would put probably most CEO jobs in this in this bucket. If you can combine sort of critical thinking, strong writing and communication skills with a, a certain amount of quantitative reasoning, I mean that is a very potent combination. Yeah. Um, in fact, our Strata's recent research actually shows, at least based on people's self-assessment of their of the skills that they gained in college, that those that tend to do the best actually have a, a mix of those skills across that spectrum. Right. In fact, in my own research, it's largely suggestive that some of the higher underemployment faced by some level arts graduates, not all of them, obviously, many of them get great jobs. But some of that higher unemployment actually, I think, is connected to the fact that so many of those uh, individuals from their students do everything they can to avoid any class that involves math. And it turns out that there's a certain, Raise my hand. <laughs> there's a certain amount of, of quantitative reasoning, not, not calculus necessarily, but just like statistics and basic yeah. analytical methods that can be really, really helpful in several contexts and can be very important, particularly when someone's trying to 
sort of begin um, the track of their career. And Brent, I'm sorry, I may have gotten off track on your actual question. No, 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 no that's good. That's great. Uh, it, it it tracks very well with, with my own kind of research and investigation. And as uh, I've mentioned this before, but spent quite a bit of time down at St. John's College in Annapolis, which is, you know, the home office of liberal arts in the United States, uh, you know, and and one thing I, I learned out of that was how many of their students wind up going the opposite direction of where you went. They, they start out as humanities and liberal arts majors, or they don't have majors, but they get that education. Uh, and then they move into IT work as uh, systems engineers, you know, and systems architects, you know, kind of thinking through these big problems. Uh, they don't actually wind up as coders, but they they do kind of big think as it relates to these complex challenges. So would really like to drive that point home. You know, it is not one or the other. It's actually both um, that, that people need, uh, uh, particularly now, um, uh, I, you know, with the decline of kind of routine sorts of labor, uh, you know, getting up the value chain is extremely important. Yeah, and I, and I like what you said about combining those skill sets. I, I think that's a really good way to think about it. And I, I think one of the mistakes that people make sometimes is there's a little bit of an implication that, you know, critical thinking is developed, uh, you know, in the liberal arts and, and more routinized analysis developed on the, on the STEM side. And, and I think there, there's maybe a little bit of truth in that, but I, but I also think what, what gets missed in that assessment is that a lot of these quantitative intensive uh, fields, not just engineering, but computer science, data science, mathematics, econ, for example, um, they actually, I think, cultivate a very powerful general skill in their own right. I mean, separate and apart from, you know, the details of fluid dynamics or thermodynamics, but but more that sort of quantitative analytical ability, that problem-solving ability that that comes from that. And I think likewise, uh, there's a great case that, you know, folks that study the math-intensive fields could probably do with a little bit more writing, <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> a little bit of balance. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And it, it, uh, part of this is a misunderstanding of how I think science is actually done. Um, science is preeminently a creative endeavor. Uh, and um, being able to imagine realities that you cannot see to the extent that we are cultivating that capacity, I think we're really setting people up for success. Uh, you know, and you can cultivate it both in the humanities and in the sciences. Um, and it, but it, it, it goes, it cuts against the grain of how we think about science, which is experiment, test, replicate, and kind of building in layers when it's actually, you know, kind of flashes of genius sometimes that that make uh, make for good science. Um, okay, so very interesting. Uh, I think that's really helpful um, to kind of understand the background you're bringing into your current uh, or more recent positions that you've had. Talk to me about the Virginia Talent Accelerator Program. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you a little story, Brent. One of the most consequential um, experiences in my professional career was uh, in 2007. So this is 15 years ago. I was uh, leading economic development in the Baton Rouge area of Louisiana. And I had recruited someone from Georgia who was very critical of uh, Louisiana's and Baton Rouge's workforce development efforts and kept ra raving about this program in Georgia. 
called the Georgia Quick Start Program. And we, we ended up scheduling a visit to go see it. And I spent a day and an evening uh, with the leadership of it. And, and what Quick Start is, and I'll get to the town accelerator, but Quick Start was really the first state major state initiative that provided uh, customized workforce solutions for new locations or expanding locations of uh, traded sector firms like manufacturers would be the, the most obvious example of that. I, I've never been more impressed with a program that I didn't create than that one. And I came back and thought to myself, boy, if Louisiana only does one thing in economic development the next couple of years, we need to create something like Quick Start. As it turned out just a few months later, I was uh, asked to be the become the Secretary of Economic Development, and I actually asked the, the governor-elect before starting, hey, um, I, I, I'm willing to do this, but I, I think we've got to do some things differently, and one of them is we need to create something like this, and we created uh, something called the Louisiana Fast Start Program, um, modeled largely on uh, Georgia Quick Start with, with some differences, and then later on, a few years later, I, I guess many years later, when I joined um, the Virginia Economic Development Partnership, the CEO, we created the Virginia Talent Accelerator Program. And what that program is, and what we did in Louisiana with Fast Start as well, is it's really a completely customized um, workforce solution provided as an incentive for competitive economic development um, projects. So this is not cash, it's actually the delivery of highly customized workforce services. So everything from uh, recruitment and screening of talent but then the real focus is development and delivery of highly customized training down to the position level. Um, and it's these programs are extremely impressive. You know, you don't think about uh, when you think about government, you often don't think about government providing, you know, high quality uh, customized services. But what we did was we really hired people with deep experience uh, in the private sector uh, in, in instructional methodologies and recruitment. Um, in uh, you know, training solutions and, and videography, I mean, all the different things that would go into this. And we would offer companies this little small army of support um, to help them get up and running. And so even these really big companies, Brent, very rarely have a large team that can uh, really come together to launch a big new facility. So it's a high stress uh, moment for those firms, particularly when they're launching a new site, or even if they're doubling, say, the size of an existing site. There's a very special set of challenges that goes into that. And we built a team that would do that, you know, let's say 50 to 100 plus times per year over and over and over dealing with all the unique issues of starting a new operation or expanding uh, a major operation. And very, very successful. Both of those programs today uh, have consistently been ranked in the top three in the country, if not number one in the country for uh, for many years. Really proud of um, what we accomplished with those. The other really cool thing. You've well, let's let's pause there for a second. Can you just talk about maybe an, a specific example of one that you thought was particularly important or you're proud of? Yeah, I mean, probably the my favorite one is still one of the very first projects we did. There was a company called um, um, Gardner Denver. It was, a, I think, a Fortune 1000 at the time. It might have gone private after that. But Gardner Denver had uh, a large operation in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, with, I think, 250 to 300 people. And they had a relatively small operation in Monroe, Louisiana, this small community with maybe 70 people. Uh, this was in the throes of the Great Recession, or at least getting into that. And they needed to consolidate to one site. So the obvious decision would have been to you know, move the Louisiana operations to Sheboygan, Wisconsin. And we made the case that they should go the other way. Uh, and that, that we could send a team to Sheboygan 
that would completely document everything they were doing on each of the lines in Sheboygan. And if they relocated, we could train people on simulated lines and get them up to speed you know, and, and make them highly productive. Uh, the CEO at the time was so pleased with what we did. This is now maybe 18 months later, uh, give or take. He actually mentioned it on his earnings call with Wall Street as uh, gave Fast Start the credit for uh, them having a very, very successful uh, ramp up. And to this day, I think it's become a very successful operation. So we not only avoided losing those 70 jobs, we were able to add, I think, around a couple hundred uh, new positions. Uh, and The Economist actually ended up writing, a, writing an article about it uh, a year or two later. Let's get that article and put it in the show notes. That's fascinating. Um, that, that's that's really uh, terrific. And I'm sorry you were headed down. You were continuing that story or the the policy story. So tell us. Oh going. yeah, I, it was a uh, um, the the basic notion was just that th there's a lot of controversy, as you know, about cash incentives uh, to companies in the United States, and it's a huge uh, business, you know, nationwide, untold billions of dollars every year. But most people are quite comfortable with government providing some kind of uh, training solutions. Even, I'm sure you're familiar with the work of Tim Bartik, who's actually said, uh, I think he's the Upjohn Institute, who's talked about, hey, delivery of customized services is actually a very uh, positive, uh, healthy thing to do. And so a lot of my work in Louisiana and especially in Virginia was working to transition, um, not completely away from economic, you know, cash incentives, but but to, to make the provision of training and education related support, a more central focus uh, of our strategy. And certainly the Virginia Talent Accelerator Program and the Louisiana Fast Start Program were both good examples of that, but not the only examples. You do much work uh, in these programs, sort of uh, reskilling, upskilling incumbent workers. Um, yes. Um, I will say because they were economic development incentives, we were mostly focused on, you know, companies committing net new employment. But if we had a company that was going to grow uh, by some meaningful amount, we we did also offer um, to retrain existing employees as well, you know, with the notion that that would help make them, you know, more competitive. Mm -hmm. um, so that was definitely part of it. But it, it, it's it's the one thing I'll say is as proud as I am of what we did with the Talent Accelerator Program in Virginia and Fast Start in Louisiana, they're definitely world-class programs, but they're not programs that are intended to solve the whole workforce issue. You could think of them more yeah. as kind of SWAT teams or sort of a rifle shot solution to a very specific uh, company need. For, for example, in, um, in Virginia, I believe we had more than 200,000 employer establishments just to give you a sense of context, you know, in roughly four million, four and a half million or so uh, total employment in the state, um, uh, the Talent Accelerator Program, even at full ramp, might serve a hundred companies, you know, a year. So there's there's a lot. So so really, the long term, it was a great solution to this sort of competitive, um, high impact economic development projects, but there was a need for more systemic solutions as well. And so the thing that I actually think will ultimately have even more impact than the Talent Accelerator Program in, in Virginia is something we created uh, called the Virginia Office of uh, Education Economics, uh, VOEE or VOE, the entire focus of which is providing um, credible fact-based analysis of uh, uh, supply-demand analysis of you know, education to employment to show where the gaps are by industry, by region, and so forth and to help state leaders and institution leaders to shape how they respond to what the market needs. And that's only about 18 months old, so it's still ramping up. 
um, but by all accounts, they're doing great work. And uh, the General Assembly of Virginia and the, the leadership at the state level have asked them to take on more and more. And I couldn't be more pleased, um, you know, with the progress they're making. That's great. Do you know, uh, is that modeled on any other state programs or is it? You know, it's, it's great. Um, it was actually modeled um, largely on ideas that uh, Strata Education Network had developed um, through the Institute for the Future of Work. There was a concept called um, a new learning ecosystem. And, and part of it envisioned a more robust data infrastructure and this notion of being able to provide um, uh, insights and navigation to help uh, people to make better informed choices about education, training, and, and labor market opportunities. And right now in the US, even though there's been a lot of work, good work done on those topics, states in general, and especially regions of states, are largely just, they, they don't have that kind of analysis today. We did look at certainly a few other places like KY Stats in Kentucky has done some really great work. Um, Colorado's done some good work in this space, um, but none of them have yet done what we're, we're ultimately kind of aspiring to do with, with VOE in Virginia. And one of the things Strata is gonna be doing is building kind of a national version of this with an education employment research center that could be an exemplar for states with our aspiration that eventually every state would adopt some form of this, um, some form of this model. You think about like all the money we spend, I mean, billions and billions and billions of dollars on K-12 post-secondary education and training with so little analytical work to help guide that, those efforts. Yeah, yeah. Make a big difference over time. No, no, it's, it's a huge issue, something that we're really um, gripped by through our um, Workforce Futures Initiative that we're doing with um, Brookings and, and Harvard Kennedy School. Um, I mean, I, I think the stakes are so high here around uh, sort of not reliving the experience that we have that we've had for the last few decades of you know massive economic change uh, at real turbulence in sort of demand for skills. I think I don't think that's slowing down. I think that's accelerating, mm -hmm. uh, and we don't have, really have tools to do the kind of predictive analysis that we need um, around what's actually going to be in demand, and then trying to you know, align the training education systems to us. I'm, I'm really thrilled uh, to hear about this project. Um, I would just add yeah. that to your point, I think, I, I think we've accomplished a great deal in, in America with, you know, the educational attainment agenda. But I think now as we're, you know, many years into that, it may be time for us to step back and, and rethink it a little bit. Um, certainly there, there's a lot of value for our broader society of you know having a more educated population but there was kind of this presumption that if we if if people get additional degrees they're going to get better economic outcomes and that's obviously true on average but it has not been true necessarily for a, a large a, a sizable minority of folks that have completed some form of post secondary education and even though we've significantly increased educational attainment we still have a big mismatch between what a lot of employers need uh, and what individuals have. And so my hope in our work at Strata and working with education and leaders and policymakers across the country is that we can, you know, certainly continue to embrace the notion of, of you know, raising uh, educational attainment in the United States, but ideally also add a, a little bit more consideration to how to enable individuals to more consistently have positive outcomes 
and how to better ensure that we're meeting the talent needs, especially of the innovation sector, but but of, of, of employers more broadly. I think that's really, really important work. And I don't think it's gotten enough attention in the broader effort to, to simply raise educational attainment overall. It's really an important point. I mean, and I think that um, the U.S. has a deeply embedded tradition of sort of letting things work themselves out. Uh, you know, that we, we have an idea for a new business and we kind of assume at some level that uh, the talent is there to support it, um, you know, and that people will come in with what they need in order to help us, you know, help us, that business person, help them be successful. I think that's a faulty assumption, I, you know, uh, given the, again, the higher and higher levels of credentialing that are required to get those jobs. Uh, you know, it's not sufficient. A high school degree is not sufficient. Two-year degree may not be sufficient. Two years plus credentials plus, you know, badges plus all of these other things that we keep throwing into the system, it, it really, uh, the, the chaos uh, is good to a degree. Uh, but it also could uh, benefit from a bit more analysis and structure um, so that people can make informed decisions, both in the business sector and in, among workers. Um, that's, right. that's great. I'm so glad that, you're, that you've taken that on. So uh, let's talk a little bit about one of my favorite subjects, which is... Uh, the the role that non-technical skill plays in career development. Um, you know, the this idea that if you ask employers for a list of 10 things of what they're looking, you know, that they're looking for, eight of them will have nothing to do with anything that the business actually does specifically, but that every business does in general. How do you how do you think about that challenge? Um, I think that's right. I, I think there, to your point earlier, I think there's been a little bit of a sort of a mismatch in the in the debate where you know people tend to either you know be a champion of STEM or be a champion of liberal arts. You know, when you when you actually survey businesses, to your point, most of what they're missing or what they say they're missing with with new college grads is actually the core things that college is supposed to be good at, right? Critical thinking and communication skills, writing, and so forth. We don't talk about this enough in the debates about degree fields that, you know, there's an awful lot of college graduates that are not necessarily graduating with um, robust college level skills. I mean, that actually is a big part uh, of the problem. That said, I do think that to the point earlier, if someone can combine really strong um, critical thinking and, and writing and communication skills with some level of uh, capacity and quantitative reasoning, Boy, that opens up just a super big range of, of opportunities. The other thing we should also think about too is the college labor market. Like if you think about sort of all the jobs that are kind of truly college level occupations, it's very sticky. You know, if a person gets into some kind of professional job, they will invariably be in professional work the rest of their career. I mean, the research suggests, that, I mean, it's a very small percentage of people that don't stay in some form of, of college level work. However, if a person starts off after their post-secondary education underemployed, only a fraction of those folks will make the transition. And there's growing research suggesting that most of them actually will not. And so getting, getting a successful launch uh, into the labor market and ideally into some kind of um, opportunity or occupational path that offers economic mobility um, is hugely important. 
Um, one of the pieces that's kind of missing with that is what are really the predictors of success? I mean, obviously we could talk about field of study or degree, but as you know, there's also some very important differences in individuals and social capital and geography of opportunity. I mean, there's a lot of other things that go into this. One of the things that we're gonna be putting some real energy and resources into is, is doing the work or commissioning the work to help folks better understand those predictors of, of different economic outcomes. One, one great example, right, of gaps today, there's a lot of interest, as you said, in badges and sort of non-degree credentials. Uh, and I think that's healthy, but boy, we, we have very little credible data about employment outcomes, right? And I, I'm sure you would agree that there's a massive range from you know very high ROI to, to no ROI. Um, we need better data on that. And that's one of the things that Strata is going to be um, working on. So this uh, brings me to sort of special populations that we're trying to work with in our, it both for the, for the good of the individuals who make up the underemployed uh, or maybe uh, unemployed and for the good of the economy. Um, you know, we are up against a really tight labor market. Um, we may hit a recession that may get, they may mask it temporarily, but the reality is that we are short of people. We need to make more um, out of what we've got. Uh, and one of those areas is, um, uh, is non-college non educated men, uh, which are having an enormously rough time uh, and have been having an enormously rough time really for a couple decades now in terms of being able to find jobs that will help them, you know, advance economically in life, uh, contribute meaningfully to, uh, you know, the sustaining a family. And, and then we've got all of this terrible sort of social challenges that go along with not getting, uh, not uh, men not getting, uh, making that, that leap. Um, what have you thought much about this challenge of uh, not in labor force males? Um, has that been on your agenda? Um, I, I've read a good bit about it, but I can't say that at Strata we put a big focus on that yet. We probably it probably deserves some more attention. I think we have tended to be focused more on um, folks that are low income in general, folks that are first generation students. Um, people of color and some of the challenges that they face. Um, having said that, I, I absolutely acknowledge, you know, the challenge that you're facing, that you've articulated rather, um, you know, Brent. I think some of it obviously is a, um, a shift in kind of the structure of the labor market, in, in particular manufacturing and other blue collar jobs that are just in, there's just a smaller number, right, in total versus where we were, say, 40 or 50 years ago. I think that's part of it. I think another part of it actually is we don't have enough good jobs for the people that have bachelor's degrees and above. Um, you know, by any measure, we've got at least a 25% underemployment rate of full-time employed adults with a bachelor's degree or higher, and it's higher, obviously, for recent graduates. So part of what's happened is folks that are not able to get that get a bachelor's degree or above are not able to get a college level occupation. They take the next best thing, which usually is a job that doesn't really call for or require a college degree but then bumps you know, the next person down. So there's a little bit of a zero sum game going on. I actually think that's a big part of what's driven this explosion in master's degrees the last decade. I don't know if you saw the numbers from census uh, a few months back, but they said in the last 10 years, the percentage of US um, 
population or adults with uh, a master's degree has gone up 50% in one decade. I think a lot of that is folks adding additional credentials to improve their relative position in the queue for a limited number of college level jobs. So while I do believe that there's um, an awful lot that we can do to make sort of improve the post-secondary education and training ecosystem to provide you know, more equitable pathways to opportunity. I also think we have to acknowledge that we do have a structural challenge in the labor market as well, that there, there arguably aren't enough good jobs right now. That's a much, that's a much harder problem. Yeah. So I do think we can, we can get more good jobs if we, there's certainly a few million good jobs that are going unfilled you know, in tech and health professions and in some skilled trades as well. If we could fill those, obviously we get multipliers off of that. We'd have, you know, more good jobs, but we've got, you know, by any measure, I mean, at least 30 million, if not more full-time employed adults that are, you know, making $35,000 a year or less, right? Not exactly family sustaining wages. And obviously a bigger number, if you set that, that uh, income level a bit higher, um, we do need to be thinking about that that piece as well. Now that starts to get maybe a little bit out of stratoscope, but I, I just think it's important that we talk a lot about, you know, people having their sort of individual capacity to pursue post-secondary education and position of the market. And that's absolutely true. But if you look at it in aggregate, there's also a, I think there's a challenge with the number of good jobs available as well. Yeah, no, I, 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 right. So that the argument has been split between the culturalists and the structuralists on this, you know, that something's wrong in the culture and that's why people aren't succeeding in the workplace and others saying there's a problem in the structure of the workplace that's making it very difficult for people to succeed. And uh, that's not a, it's, it's a, those are both helpful analytical frames, but they need to be, uh, they need to be reconciled, uh, you know, like it, this, is, this is a both and. Um, challenge. I'm I'm kind of interested in like, um, you know, right now we've got about 800,000 unfilled manufacturing jobs in this country. And these are the kinds of jobs that we have been saying we don't have enough of, need more of, uh, and yet they're still going wanting. Um, and that suggests to me, either we've got problems of geographic mismatch, you know, the jobs are not where the people are, the people aren't where the jobs are, or uh, there's something in the jobs themselves that uh, just because it says manufacturing does not mean it is somehow less skilled or unskilled or doesn't require a very high level of skill. Um, is that part of what we're facing here? Kind of a, there's been a, a change in the, in the skill set within the position that uh, makes it harder to access. Um, I think that's some of it. I, I do think if you look at manufacturing, I mean, having worked with hundreds of manufacturers over the last 15 years, there's a very wide range of sort of job quality in manufacturing. And some of them are actually quite highly compensated. If you look at the semiconductor sector, if you look at um, uh, chemical um, manufacturers, petrochem, energy in general, um, there's uh, nuclear, there's several parts that do pay quite well. Um, there's a lot of jobs that that don't pay that well. Even in the automotive sector, a lot of the new plants, you know, I mean, they're they're certainly better than um, you know retail, um, but they're not uh, certainly comparable to a lot of the let's say lower end you know professional jobs. So I do think I think job quality is part of it. I do think also the skill mismatch is part of it, and I think some of that is that you know in the U.S. we've sort of 
we've kind of made uh, some other sectors sort of feel a little bit sexier. Mm. And so manufacturing, I think for young folks, uh, because it hasn't really been kind of like a, a star industry in media and the narrative in general in the country, I think that's had some negative impacts. There's actually are quite a few um, you know, good jobs uh, to be had in the manufacturing space. The other thing, interestingly, like you mentioned engineers earlier, a lot of engineers who leave engineering are actually leaving for a high, more highly compensated professional work in consulting or finance or, or other roles. So some of this is, I think, is a little bit of a consequence of globalization where companies are feeling, you know, a lot of pressure on kind of the manufacturing portion of their total cost structure. And some of that gets pressed down in wages, but some of it certainly is a, is a mismatch in, in, in talent as well. I mean, if you look at these, like I've worked with many, the greatest challenge I've faced in my work leading state economic development efforts in both Virginia and Louisiana was uh, supporting the smaller kind of rural regions or smaller metros where they really lack the scale that a lot of uh, companies are looking for today. And part of the challenge is that while they have an attractive cost structure in terms of cost of labor, cost of living, they don't necessarily have the talent pipelines for these uh, specialized skill sets that manufacturers often need. So you're right, there is a little bit of a, there's a mismatch there. In fact, by the way, what I would see over and over, whether it was a big automotive manufacturing company, semiconductor manufacturing, or other high-end manufacturing enterprise of scale, their ideal location would be a large, low-cost you know, metro, so like a, or at least large moderate cost metro, let's say. So you end up having the the rural areas that really most desperately needed those jobs would get overlooked unless they had a really great site that was ready to go compared to like a midsize or larger metro of, you know, relatively average uh, cost. So I, I keep reading these stories about, you know, sort of reshoring of microchips and reshoring of high tech. Uh, stuff in the United States, you know, for national security and other reasons. Um, and whenever I read these stories, I always think, where are we going to get the people to do this? Mm -hmm. you know, these are not easy. These jobs are not easy to fill. And we're talking about creating mm -hmm. thousands or tens of thousands of them um, in a relatively short period of time. Um, is anybody else concerned or am I on, am I on my own? Um, no, I, I probably have a unique perch on that topic because I, you know, I only left my economic development role after December, right? So I actually worked with several of those big global companies on potential locations in Virginia. One of the things that's interesting about them is uh, these chip plants, uh, they hire a very large number of engineers, like, you know, college grad engineers. I don't think it's the majority, but it's a big minority um, I don't want to exaggerate, but I think it was at least 20%, if not 30% of total employment. So big, big chunk of engineers, which is fairly atypical, you know, for manufacturing enterprises in general. I think the U.S. is doing a pretty good job on producing, you know, that talent. Um, and then there's a lot of uh, sort of high-end blue-collar uh, technician type roles. I, I think the U.S. is going to be okay on meeting the talent needs. I really do. I, actually, my bigger concern I shouldn't say concern, but the unfortunate reality is as big as the CHIPS Act is, and I, I think overall that was a, personally, I think that was a good move for the United States. You know, if you look at the total employment, even in the best case scenario compared to manufacturing in general, um, I suspect it's a, a relatively small, you know, impact on aggregate manufacturing employment in the U.S. Yeah, AEI hosted a session on this. Uh, somebody just wrote a book on 
how complicated the manufacturing process is for microchips uh, and how it's really kind of a, you know, it, it, even if you have a plant here, you're still relying on suppliers for other equipment in other countries. And it's just mind-blowingly complex. Um, you know, to produce these very high-end semiconductors is, uh, it's like science fiction. It's so complicated. Uh, and, uh, and that's the kind of thing that just isn't going to produce a lot of broad-based, on its own, a lot of broad-based employment growth. It will feed other employment growth, obviously, as, uh, you know, as we shift, you know, the actual production of things um, into the U.S., but it's a, it's a, it's an amazing area to look at. Uh, I, I hope this is a good investment. I have no idea, no way to judge whether Chips, Chips Act is a good investment or not, but I, 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 it may be unavoidable. So go, real, go real, ahead. Real quick on the CHIPS Act. Um, the reason I think there might be a case for it is you, you do, what, what I saw in my job, like trying to recruit some of these plants to Virginia was the enormous cost advantage that some of these other countries had, partly because of the subsidies that they would, that they would provide. Um, and I know subsidies are, are you know, a, a controversial thing in the United States, but when we're talking about, I mean, the national security implications, the sort of technology leadership uh, implications, to me, I, I, I kind of think there's a case there, at least in that sector. I'm not saying manufacturing in general, but, but, I, but I, I, from where I stood as a state economic development leader, I actually thought I was very pleased that the federal leaders were, were taking that on. Yeah. Um. Okay, so let's focus a little bit on um, we had we had you and Ann Cress uh, on for a session about what's what needs to be done in community college systems, um, and uh, and I'm really I want, really wanted to get your take on this. I remember that Ann said Ann Cress, who runs the Virginia community, Northern Virginia community. Northern Virginia. Yeah, one of the largest systems in the country. Uh, and I think, I think one of the best community college presidents in the country. As yeah. well. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I don't, I have no way of judging that, but I take your word for it. Uh, and she certainly contributed a lot to that discussion. But um, one of the points she hit on was uh, the sort of lack of infrastructure that we have at community colleges in the career navigation system like we invest a tremendous amount of money in teaching people how to do things but not nearly as much as we probably need in helping them figure out what they might want to do and how to get from where they are to where they want to go uh, and she said it in northern virginia they have one guidance counselor for every thousand students or something like that which struck me as laughably uh inadequate uh, to meet the needs, particularly of a population that is less socially connected to begin with, doesn't have the, uh, what do they call it, the uh, you know, weak ties that, that you frequently need in order to find the job and understand the educational options. Is there a case here to, for a big new significant investment in that part of what community colleges do? Oh, I think there is. I I personally, Strada thinks there's a case for improving coaching 
really in general from K-12 all the way through adult learners. Um, it's a big, big gap. I mean, we, as you think about trying to make good on this idea of America being a place of equal opportunity, the reality is a lot of that notion depends on someone actually understanding what the options are that are available to them, right? I mean, I think about, I have four school-aged kids and the, the advantages they have growing up with two highly educated, you know, relatively affluent parents and understanding the range of things, how to position themselves for each step of the way. I mean, it's enormous, right? I mean, certainly they're working hard um, and, and they're gonna earn their way, but they're also getting a lot of advantages just from conversations around the dinner table, right? So I, I, I think, uh, I completely agree with Anne on this, um, that we need a much bigger investment in, in coaching and navigation in general. I, I would not limit it to community colleges, but would agree that it's probably more urgent there than other places. I would also say that I think the way that we fund community colleges in general is is inadequate. Um, uh, so much of what um, they do, they're pressured to do kind of economically is to provide these sort of you know junior college transfer programs tend to not have great success and people going on to get bachelor's degrees and the the economic outcomes don't tend to be very strong for folks that just have you know a general associate's degree. Uh, and a big part of that is the, the the high wage, high demand programs also tend to be high cost programs, mm -hmm. whether it's technology, uh, health professions, skilled trades, they tend to involve higher salaries, they tend to involve bigger startup packages, more money for labs and so forth. And in general, the US doesn't do a good job of um, providing for that. I mean, there's some exceptions, obviously. I mean, even Northern Virginia Community College, it's really only because of its scale I think Ann would agree that they're able to do some of these things so much better. If you look at the smaller regions, the rural regions of Virginia, I mean, they 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 just have a fraction. It's not just the scale, but what they're able to provide in terms of those programs is just highly, highly limited. So is there anybody who's doing a good job on this that we should be looking at? Um, I think there are definitely some. One of the interesting things about um, community colleges is, uh, unlike most universities, there are some communities that have part of the community college funding based on a local tax structure, so they can kind of control their own destiny a little bit more. I believe Dallas, uh, Texas is an example of that. Um, I'd be hesitant to name specific places, but I do think if you talk to uh, Joe May, who was the former head of the, uh, I forget what they call it, but the Dallas Community College System, uh, and also ran the Louisiana system at one point. I think he would be able to cite several examples. But I, I do think, I mean, obviously money's not everything, but I but I do think in the community college space, I suspect more often than not, that a huge part of the constraint is just not having the fiscal capacity to mm -hmm. offer the programs that would provide the best economic outcomes for individuals. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that's true. I also think that it's up against... Um, sort of the perception, and I think a real one, that we're, we're already overstaffed on administrators, and these would tend to fall into kind of admin, the administrative bucket. Um, uh, so it's it's hard to make a case, well, we, we need more money for people who don't teach things, but people who help other, yeah, help students connect. Uh, it sounds like uh, more of what it appears we may already be overinvested in, but I, I, it's hard to get. I mean, that number really sticks with me. One for a thousand students is, you know, like I said, it's laughable. It's probably worse than doing nothing, um, or at least no better than doing nothing um, in terms of uh, of helping to build this out. So I, 
I'm just curious as to whether anybody, any system around the country has kind of taken this on and said, this is our, this is one of our most important problems in trying to solve it. Um, so maybe we should do a little more exploration on that. I think that'd be Stephen, this has been a fantastic uh, conversation. Thank you so much for um, being with us. What's next for you? What are you, what are you focusing on um, moving forward? Yeah, so Brent, we have actually developed uh, recently a new strategic plan for Strata and a very ambitious uh, vision, um, and that that our North Star, if you will, and, and that that vision really is to help bring to life a post-secondary education and training ecosystem that provides equitable pathways to opportunity, and to make that real for for all Americans, particularly those that have faced the greatest challenges. And we've hit on several of those pieces today, but there are basically five big things we're going to be focused on. One is clear outcomes making sure that the infrastructure and the transparency is there to help people make well-informed uh, choices about post-secondary education training. Second, we touched on this quality coaching and navigation. Third, affordability. Fourth, uh, paid work-based learning opportunities. We need to make a huge improvement there on both the institution side and the employer side. And finally, fifth, uh, employer alignment and helping ensure that not only is higher education able to better meet the needs, the talent needs of companies, particularly the innovation sector in the United States, but also helping companies to think a little bit more um, carefully about how they recruit talent and trying to avoid sort of over-credentializing positions where they don't really need a particular uh, body of, of, of knowledge. Because if, if they could sort of be uh, approach it in a more skills-based way, they would have both more diverse uh, talent pools and be able to better meet their talent needs. So that's gonna be our focus over the next many years to come and looking forward to getting your input and, and guidance along the way. Uh, well, it, it, I'll look forward to trailing along behind you and learning. Um, so thanks, uh, that's fantastic. Look forward to this continued conversation with you on in, in this forum and other forums that we work together in. And I hope you have a wonderful time with your family this weekend. Thank you. You as well, Brent. Great to be with you today. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.